Daniel chapter 4. While you all turn to Daniel 4, I'm going to turn to Mark 10. And just uh, share with you something here. A story that Matthew and Mark and Luke, all three, share. The Synoptic Gospels, they're called, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar in many ways. In Mark chapter 10, verse 17, it says, As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened. He went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at His words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to Him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Who do you know that seems impossible to save? We all know them. Friends, family members, people that when you look at their lives and you look at how they're living, you think there is no way. I don't see how they're going to make it. I don't see how they could possibly be saved. Maybe you've tried to share Jesus again and again to no avail. Maybe you've known the disappointment of sharing the gospel to a brick wall. To someone who is just flat affect, no response, no no reaction to the glorious truth that you know that you're sharing. When sharing the gospel becomes discouraging, remember what Jesus said. With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And for all of the impossible cases of salvation out there, I would have to put Nebuchadnezzar in the impossible category. This is not someone in the Scriptures that you would expect to find salvation. Not someone that you would expect to bow the knees to Jesus Christ. And yet, listen to his own words. Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. I remind you, still written in Aramaic. But this chapter is not written by Daniel. This chapter is written by Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, in his own words, says, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion is from generation to generation. Wow! Daniel chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's witness. It is his testimony, his shocking personal testimony of a life changed 
and shockingly changed. Speaking of shocking, I was in the third grade when 70s shock rocker Alice Cooper came on the scene. And you know what's weird? A little girl in my third grade class was named Alice. And I couldn't figure that out. She's named Alice, but this guy with his eyeliner is named Alice. Why would any grown man want to be named Alice? It just didn't make any sense to me. Alice Cooper. But even more shocking than all the music and the videos and the things that he's done over the years, in the 90s, Alice Cooper got saved. Now there are those who believe, I know, some evangelicals who say, no, no way. No way that guy got saved. No way. He was too far gone. It's impossible. Well, I listened just this afternoon. We revisited an old YouTube video of Alice Cooper being interviewed. And the interviewer was not asking about his faith. The interviewer just said, I know that you came out of rehab some years back um, and you, you, you've sworn off alcohol and you attribute that to your um, some kind of a belief, some kind of faith. And Alice Cooper said, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. And without any prompting, he said, and I'm not a carnal Christian either. I totally believe, and this is a quote, I totally believe every single word in the Bible. Alice Cooper said that. Shocking. The interviewer goes on to talk to him a little bit more about what it's like to be a Christian, and he's such a uh, pronounced Christian, by his own words, in, in the music business, in the music world. How, how do you do that? And he said, well, first of all, God healed me. He said, even before I was born again, God healed me of alcohol. And he says, I know it because I'm an absolute addict. I was telling Les today, he said, I'm addicted to all kinds of things. I'm addicted to TV. I have 27 of them in my home. I'm addicted to Diet Coke. I cannot stop drinking it. 10, 12, 14 Diet Cokes a day. But I have no desire whatsoever to drink alcohol. I'm done. I walked out of there and God healed me of it. And he said, I'm surrounded by it. The pressure is intense. It's great in the music business to do drugs and alcohol. He says, I have no desire. God healed me of that. But he also said this. He said, you'd be surprised. The ones in the music business that you think are the farthest gone are the ones who tend to be the most apt to listen. The impossible ones. We sometimes write people off. Oh, maybe not intentionally, but we write them off as impossible. Nebuchadnezzar was impossible. This great world dictator. Talk about seeming pretty far gone. Nebuchadnezzar flew into irrational rages, calling for people to be torn limb from limb and for their homes to be turned into outhouses. Nebuchadnezzar, he was the insecure insomniac. And I was thinking about this today from a purely humanistic perspective. His dreams reveal the mind of someone who was absolutely terrified he was going to lose it all. If you just look at the dreams, now we know God gave him the dreams. We know the dreams were, were words of warning from the Lord God. But he's ruminating on these things and he's thinking about these things. And clearly, Nebuchadnezzar felt like his kingdom could slip through his grasp. And so he was insecure. He had an ego 90 feet high by 9 feet wide. This guy seemed pretty unsavable. But so far in our study through Daniel, you can see obviously that God went after him. 
the hound of heaven, as the old poem goes, went after Nebuchadnezzar. What do you mean, Rick? In Daniel chapter 1. God starts out by bringing Nebuchadnezzar face to face with four young witnesses. Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, Hananiah, these four bros, these four Jewish lads walk out their faith in front of Nebuchadnezzar. They testify before him. In Daniel chapter 2, the Lord disturbs Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and then brings revelation and interpretation through these same four young men. Daniel being the the mouthpiece, but we know the other three were there as well. God is trying to get the attention of this world leader. Daniel chapter 3, the Lord literally walks out salvation from fire before Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. Who gets to see that? Turn or burn meant a totally different thing to Nebuchadnezzar. As he watched a fourth man in the fire... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego should have been burnt to a crisp immediately like the guys who threw them in. But there's a fourth man walking around. And as we said Sunday, Nebuchadnezzar had to call just to get them to come out. Because they were with Jesus. And God did all of this. And finally we come to chapter 4 and Nebuchadnezzar learns godly peace. And there's an interesting contrast here. Note this. In verse 2, he says... To all the peoples and nations and men of every language that live on the earth, he says, May your peace abound. May your peace abound. That's the end of, I guess, verse 1 there. May your peace abound. The Aramaic there, actually the Hebrew uh, translation of the Aramaic is Shalom Sagah, which is literally, May your peace grow green. And thus Nebuchadnezzar founded Greenpeace. That's where it all started. Now, this is probably a poetic illusion. Because Nebuchadnezzar knows the testimony he's about to give. And that testimony is the testimony of a vision of a great tree. And with that vision in mind, and what happened in mind, he says to all the people of the world under his authority, he says, may your peace abound. May your peace grow green. He writes this testimony as one who knows the difference between... Spiritual peace, a true peace that is growing green, and superficial ease. Look at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. That's the world's definition of peace right there. Being at ease. Living the good life. The king of Babylon had it all. He was the self-made man. He is at ease, but he's not at peace. I was at ease in my palace. The Hebrew word ease there is not shalom, not the word for peace, which is shalom. It's shalah. Shalah comes up short. Shalah is the Hebrew word that it's a derivative verb from shalom, but it literally means carefree, lighthearted. It's superficial peace. It is not the peace that Nebuchadnezzar calls out for the people of the world. May your peace grow. May it abound. May you know shalom. No, Nebuchadnezzar says, I I thought I knew it. I was at ease. I was carefree. I was laid back. Shalom is an external ease. It's a passing peace that comes perhaps on a vacation, on a day off, in a moment of quiet that is quickly overrun by the cares of life. It's that external, superficial peace that leaves the inside void. And that's where Nebuchadnezzar was. 
I was at ease. I was in my palace. He goes on in verse 5, And I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So he dreams it, and then he keeps thinking about it. And then he's lying on his bed, just bringing it back to mind, seeing it, and considering it, ruminating over it, and it's freaking him out. How often do people put on superficial shalom like a mask? Hiding turmoil that's truly going on inside. Sleepless nights. I have a friend on Facebook who keeps talking about and every night around 10 o'clock he posts, I hope tonight's better because he cannot sleep. He's just not sleeping. And there are so many people who, who have that ease, that carefree lifestyle in front it all looks so good. So many of the movie stars that we see, and then they end up dead of a drug overdose, and you wonder what was going on. Everything seems so easy. By the world's standards, Nebuchadnezzar was at ease, but his shalom was a sham. Speaking of trees, he's kind of like the fig tree in Bethany. You know, when Jesus is walking along, it says in Mark 11, verse 12, when they left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Then he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. The tree shriveled up, and the tree died. The tree was a sham. The tree was false. It gave the false perception of a roadside fruit stand. And that's the way it worked in those days. If you were hungry, you just could grab a piece of fruit along the side of the road. Or if you went through a field, you could grab a few grains of wheat and chomp on them. And at the time that Jesus came, it was early for figs. It was the days before the rich, brown, meaty figs of the summer, which were ripe for picking. But there should have been figs on the tree nonetheless. You Bible students know this. There should have been early figs. When a fig tree leaves... Not departs, but when it you know bears leaves, it bears figs as well. Small, hard, bluish green, early figs. They don't taste very good, but you can eat them, and they are nutritious, and they are strengthening. And so, for the traveler, you could grab a handful of early figs off of a tree and eat them up. If there were leaves on the tree, there should be early figs on the tree. We've seen them in Israel, big leafy trees that don't have the nice brown figs, but those blue ones are there. And you should be able to grab them and eat them right off the tree. Jesus sees this leafy fig tree without a single early fig on it and says, this is a sham. This is a falsehood. It's a graphic illustration of the fruitlessness of superficiality. And we see this in Nebuchadnezzar living a shalah versus a shalom type of life. It's the lawn and garden show of the world. You ever been to a lawn and garden show? You know, they have all the plants and they've got all the things out there and the little waterfalls and everything and, you know, literally an hour after the show's over, it's all gone. It's all picked up and taken away. It's all a show. And our world is at show. Looks at ease. Looks well watered. It looks peaceful. You know it's a sham. The peace of this world is a sham. There's only one place to find a peace that, that truly grows green. And you all know it. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's the only place you can find a true and a lasting peace. Philippians 4, verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the peace Nebuchadnezzar was lacking. That's what was eluding him. That's what he ends up with. Let's read on. Verse 6. So, He's having these bizarre visions, these alarming dreams. I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Haven't we seen this before? And we know this isn't the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2. It's a different dream because in this situation, he tells them what the dream is. He describes the dream and he says, what does this mean? Now, this is remarkable to me. Why does Nebuchadnezzar call in these charlatans? He's already seen them for what they are. He already knows they're bogus. Bible says, Proverbs 26.11, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Who just goes at it again. I'm going to call in the, the wise men. I'm going to call in the diviners and the charlatans. Let's bring them back in. Maybe this time they'll get it. Maybe this time it'll be different. It was Einstein who said insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. <laughs> like hoping to find a snack in the refrigerator when you've already looked five times. You know there's nothing in there but you're going to look again. That's insane. It's like governmental legislation. It's just insane. <laughs> and it's the same, you know, I just know this with Nebuchadnezzar, it's the same soulish rut that people get into. I want to find some way to get some relief from the thing that is freaking out my soul. And so we see, and I see this all the time. I do this sometimes. Replaying the same threats and fears. Have you ever gone for prayer, gotten together with some brothers and sisters and really prayed over an issue and then went home and continued to fret? That's insane. (laughs) That's just craziness. It's regurgitating the same worries and doubts. I've met with people, none of you, but I've met with people who share some major life situation, we pray over it, and a week later they're back sharing the same exact thing. I'm like, didn't we cover this before? Maybe we need to call in the wise men and the diviners of Babylon. It's returning to the same ineffective methods of soul relief. It's like OCD. Obsessive compulsive disorder. And I don't mean the one that we joke about. I'm talking about real obsessive compulsive disorder. Do you know what that is? You have an obsession in your mind. This is what Nebuchadnezzar has. He's obsessing over this dream. He's got to do something to find relief. So the obsession gives way to a compulsion. Sometimes it's someone turning on and off a light switch. You know, sometimes it's so bad there are people who get hospitalized because of hand washing. If I wash, if I just keep washing, and they start to rub the skin off of their, of their arms. Because the compulsion makes the obsession go away. Obsessive compulsive disorder. And we have this obsessive compulsion with trying to come up with methods of relieving our minds, our souls, when the real problem is a spiritual problem. Nebuchadnezzar had a spiritual problem. Calling in the wise men wasn't going to heal that. 
Calling in the diviners and the sages of Babylon, that wasn't going to make any difference whatsoever. And he knew that. Only Jesus can get you out of a spiritual rut. And you might find yourself in a spiritual rut. You know, they say a rut is just a grave with the ends knocked out. You know? A rut is where people die. Only Jesus can pull you out of the rut. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.25, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. I like that. He's not only the shepherd of my spirit, he's the shepherd of my soul. He guards my mind against these obsessions and against these thoughts that would continually drag me down. He pulls me out. He gives me spiritual relief, which is what I need. Well, Nebuchadnezzar calls in the same old guard. But verse 8, finally Daniel came in before me. He writes, Whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen, along with its interpretation." And you might say, well, Rick, you're saying that you think Nebuchadnezzar maybe found the Lord here, but he's talking about his god, Bel, and he's saying that Daniel has the spirit of the holy gods. Just understand, he's relaying his testimony from a pagan perspective. He's saying, this is where I was at. And when I called Daniel in, this is what I said to him, because this was my mindset. Prior to what's about to be relayed here, this is what I was thinking. I looked at Daniel and I said, that guy's got something. He's got a spirit of the holy gods, plural. The pagan chieftain of mighty Babylon looks at Daniel and just sees someone who's got some spiritual thing happening. Non-Christians, non-believers will look at you the same way. They will not look at you going, oh man, that guy's got Jesus. i got to go to him to get some Jesus. No, they'll look at you and go, Jim's got peace. He's so laid back. And this stuff doesn't seem to bother him. There, there's something spiritual about that guy. Something that I, I I'm going to talk to him about that. Same thing with Nebuchadnezzar. Bel was his god, and all he knew was that Daniel had the spirit, ruach in the Hebrew, of the holy gods, that Kadish Allah. And so, reading on, verse 10 tells us, Now these were the visions in my mind, he's now telling Daniel. As I lay on my bed, I was looking... And behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. I'll just tell you, the beasts would represent the nations of the world. And the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. And all living creatures fed themselves in it or from it. And I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. And behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave a stump with its roots in the ground, but with an iron band and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. 
Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whom He wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. A couple things to note here. Verses 13, 17, and 23, uh, further down in the chapter, mention the watcher. The Hebrew word is ear. I-Y-R. Ear. And it's apparently a class of angelic sentinels or guardians. And this is the only place in the entire Bible where they're even mentioned. I can't tell you more about it because, again, we're hearing from Nebuchadnezzar from a pagan perspective at that point that he saw in this vision someone to send out of heaven a watcher of types. Is it a Christology? I I don't know. Or a Christophany? Is it an appearance of Christ? Probably not. Probably in this case, it's a representative, guardian, angel of sorts who is sent down to bring this message So the watcher. And notice also in verse 15 that around this stump, once this massive beautiful tree is cut down, there's a stump left, and around the stump is a band of iron and bronze. Why? Well, probably for two reasons. One, for confinement. That what's happening to this tree, this tree is not going to be allowed to go anywhere or be transplanted anywhere. It is confined to this location, but in addition to confinement protection... For the stump must be kept in the new grass and protected for something to follow. The dream, even if you're not an interpreter of sorts, the dream shouldn't be that hard to figure out. And in fact, Nebuchadnezzar heard the watcher declare the purpose. The watcher said that this is in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whom He wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Contrast that with the one in the world at that time who was like a great spreading tree, and it would be Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was alarmed. He had to know. He had to at least sense, perhaps, in his own heart, is that me? Is this about me? Am I the tree? But he couldn't bring himself to accept it. I think the wise men and the uh, diviners and the sages and all the, you know, charlatans of Babylon, I think they knew too. I think they heard the dream and like, "Um, you gonna tell him? I'm not gonna tell him. You gonna tell him? I'm not gonna tell him. You tell him. I can't share that with the king. I don't think they wanted to share it. Because it clearly indicts the king of the known world with some kind of serious disciplinary action. Something's about to happen to this glorious tree, and I don't think Nebuchadnezzar wanted to see it. I don't think his advisors wanted to tell it. And I don't think any one of us would want to say it to Nebuchadnezzar either. This is a guy who tears people limb from limb. No pun intended. Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name is... Belteshazzar, that was the pagan Babylonian name, you recall. 
was appalled for, for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible in all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in those branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you, O king. For you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave a stump with its roots in the ground but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever He wishes. And that it was in that it was commanded to leave the stump with roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that heaven rules. Heaven rules. That's what it really says there. I know it says that it is heaven that rules, but the it is and the that are added by the translators. And I just like heaven rules, man. Heaven rules. you got to recognize it is heaven that rules. A couple of things about how Daniel responds here that's so impressive to me. Nebuchadnezzar shares the dream, and Daniel, like the other advisors, is like, oh no, this is not good. He obviously knows immediately what the interpretation is, but he doesn't want to say anything. And he's thinking, how, how do I... Daniel responds with tenderness. And I think it's fascinating here. He pauses a while before telling Nebuchadnezzar the dream because it, it shocked Daniel. It upset Daniel. And even Nebuchadnezzar recognizes Daniel's apprehension. He says back there in verse 19, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream and its interpretation alarm you. It's okay, you can, you can tell me. Because he can see that Daniel's gone white in the face. And Daniel reminds me, he's like Nathan. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Remember when Nathan the prophet had to confront King David over his adulterous affair with Bathsheba? And Nathan does it with amazing tenderness. He comes in and he tells a parable. And he tries to get David to see for himself. And Daniel, in the same way, is alarmed. He he, he pauses, not out of fear. I think the pause is more likely because of what Daniel says, more likely because he really cared for Nebuchadnezzar. That's weird. I mean, he even says, oh, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. If only... Would that this be about somebody else, Daniel says. He's truly concerned for Nebuchadnezzar. 
This is the same Daniel who was ripped out of his homeland by Nebuchadnezzar and forced as an exile to serve in his court. How do you love like that? Someone who has violated your life now comes to you for help. Do you help them? Do you care a whit about them? Well, Daniel does. That's remarkable. Maybe he had hoped Nebuchadnezzar would at some point come around. But with this stunning vision, Daniel had to be wondering, what is God doing? What is He doing? Let me give you an example. You're praying for someone to become a believer, to follow the Lord, and some horrible thing happens in their life and you think, oh no, this is the worst possible thing. Lord, how could you allow this? They were so close! And now this big problem is happening! And now they're sure to turn away! When the reality may very well be the opposite. That we have to remember His thoughts are not our thoughts. And our ways are not His ways. Isaiah 55 verse 8. And so understand, when you intercede for someone in prayer, asking the Lord's intervention, don't be surprised if it goes down differently than you imagined. And by the way, that's why we stick to the Word of God. We don't sugarcoat, embellish, or worse, change it to make it more palatable. We just tell it like it is. And we respond, however, tenderly. You give the Word tenderly, Daniel does that. He responds with tenderness, but secondly, he responds with truth. It's you. It's you, Nebuchadnezzar. You're the guy. And again, like Nathan with David, Daniel doesn't skirt the truth. David, Nathan says the same thing. It's you. You're the one. This is about you, David. And Daniel says this is about you, Nebuchadnezzar. And we are told that we are to be speaking the truth in love. And doing so, we're to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. Ephesians 4.15 We speak the truth in love. Which means we love people enough to speak the truth. Speaking the truth in love does not mean watering it down. It just means you don't throw it at them harshly. You're going to go to hell if you don't... You know, that's not, that's not speaking the truth in love. However, that truth remains. Without Jesus, your eternity is hopeless. Without Jesus, you're lost. That's the truth. And we are called to speak the truth in love. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.17, we are not like many peddling the Word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. We speak with sincerity, with true and genuine concern, as Daniel shows with Nebuchadnezzar. That's all the Lord asks of us. Speak honestly. Speak with sincerity. Speak with love. Verse 27. Therefore, O King, Daniel continues, May my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. What does he say? Nebuchadnezzar, repent. Repent. This dream is legitimate. This dream is true. This is about to happen to you. Repent. You can turn this around. 
James says in James 5.19, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Peter, quoting Proverbs 10, verse 12, in 1 Peter 4.8 says, Love covers a multitude of sins. Daniel loved Nebuchadnezzar enough to say, Repent. He doesn't just interpret the dream. He takes it a step further. And now, there's something you can do here. Turn it around, O king. Because love doesn't rejoice in punishment. It doesn't seek to uncover. Love doesn't go out of its way to embarrass a foe. It doesn't look for the fall guy. I get so, I've mentioned this a few times. I just get so tired of how our culture wants to blame somebody for everything. And it is not love to seek blame. Again, Daniel was a Jewish exile. What an opportunity to celebrate Nebuchadnezzar's demise. This dream is about you, Nebuchadnezzar, and you are going down. You are going to get chopped. Oh man, bummer for you. (laughs) Instead, Daniel implores repentance. But Nebuchadnezzar is not quite ready. Verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, hang on right here. Nebuchadnezzar truly had built a remarkable empire. And it's only been in recent centuries that we've recognized this at all. In fact, back in the oh, the second and the first centuries BC, they didn't believe Nebuchadnezzar built New Babylon. They didn't believe that it was constructed by Nebuchadnezzar the king. It was thought by some that now nah, he didn't have anything to do with that. And down through the years, people they looked at Daniel and they said, Well, see, Nebuchadnezzar claims to have built this, but he didn't. There's no way he could have built this. We have since found out that he did. Let me give you a taste of the greatness of Babylon as built by, constructed by Nebuchadnezzar. The city of Babylon itself. Six columns filled with writing in the British Museum describe Nebuchadnezzar's beautification and building projects. Nine-tenths of all the bricks that have been discovered in that region and unearthed in excavations in and around Babylon bear the stamp of Nebuchadnezzar's name. In fact, the stamp says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, supporter of Esagila and Ezida, exalted firstborn son of Nabopolassar, king of Babylon. Every brick has that stamp. Did Nebuchadnezzar build it? Well, his name was on the bricks. The city proper was, in Nebuchadnezzar's day, valued at over a billion dollars. In Nebuchadnezzar's day. That's not by today's accounting. That's by back then. And the city stores in Babylon were so full, with the Euphrates River diverted around Babylon like a great moat, it was said that Babylon could last 20 years under siege. How rich and wealthy and 
and prosperous the great city was. The walls were 350 feet high. Just the wall around Babylon, 87 feet thick. There were 220 towers along the ramparts on the wall that went around Babylon. 220. Six chariots could ride side by side on the top of the wall. And in the middle of the city, on a huge base, 400 feet square, climbing 400 feet in the air, in the center, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon considered one of the seven wonders of the world. This was apparently just beautiful. These gardens were described as a mountain of flowers just going up in the midst of the city. At the top of the gardens was the temple to Bel, which had a gold idol of Bel valued at $17 million. And Nebuchadnezzar did all this. And Nebuchadnezzar was probably wandering in the gardens, the hanging gardens of Babylon at the time that he spoke these words, at the time he declared himself to be the Lord of all he surveyed. I look out and I see what I have accomplished. Look at what I've done. By contrast, I go out to the building site and I stand in that building and I go, look at what God has done. Blows my mind. It's stunning to me how God works and how He achieves what He desires to achieve. Nebuchadnezzar's not quite there. Nebuchadnezzar sees that it's his mighty work, his great deeds. By the way, verse 29 tells us what's about to happen took place 12 months after the conversation he had with Daniel. An entire year now goes by from when he has the visions and calls in Daniel and has told the interpretation. A year goes by. Which reminds us that the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. God gives Nebuchadnezzar 12 months to think this through and to repent, and He doesn't do it. He just stands up, and while God is patient, Nebuchadnezzar is forgetful. Verse 30 again, he reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared. Sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever He wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. (laughs) Some dismiss this. They read this and go, that's the stuff of fairy tales. I mean, that's like Jonah and the whale, you know? That's those stories that can't possibly be true. It's too fanciful. It's just too strange. In 268 B.C., the Greek historian... Abedinus 
wrote that Nebuchadnezzar was, quote, possessed by some god, unquote, and, quote, immediately disappeared, unquote. Josephus referred to the Babylonian historian whose name was Barosus, and Barosus wrote about a strange mental malady that Nebuchadnezzar suffered sometime before his death. So there was something back there odd that happened to Nebuchadnezzar where he lost himself, where he disappeared for a time. The historians note that. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar's own testimony tells us exactly what happened. Several conditions could apply. If you want to put a name on this, Insania Zoanthropica is one. That means when you become so insane, you act like animals. It's more of a generic, you know, so it could be applied to a lot of people, I guess. Another possibility, lycanthropy, which is where the whole werewolf myth came from, someone that begins to believe themselves to be a wolf. But the most likely one is called boanthropy. Boanthropy is a literal condition. It's the delusion of being an ox. And it has been documented by mental health professionals, people who have truly thought that they were an ox, down on all fours, eating grass in the field. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. All of these describe a beastly insanity, grass-fed, wild dreads, refusing to bathe. Sounds like some environmentalists here on Whidbey Island. I'm not sure. Just may have seen one or two. I don't know. You know, before his capture in December of 2003, Saddam Hussein boasted that he was the reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar. He claimed over Iraq... And over the region that Babylon, he was completely focused on rebuilding Babylon. And he said, I am Nebuchadnezzar, incarnate. Well, when they plucked him out of his hidey hole, he looked an awful lot like Nebuchadnezzar in these verses. His hair was long and matted. His nails were grown out like bird's claws. Careful what you wish for. The reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar. His first words upon capture were, I'm Saddam Hussein, I'm the president of Iraq, and I want to negotiate. (laughs) Too late. But even after his insanity, it wasn't too late for Nebuchadnezzar. Look at how all this ended. Verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? Pause right there. Have you said that to the Lord? What have you done? How could you allow? Why would you? I would encourage caution. And remind you what Nebuchadnezzar himself learned, and that is God is the God of heaven and earth over all things. And who are you? Who am I to answer back to Him? Who are we 
to think what sheer arrogance to think we can get all up in God's face and ask Him how He could possibly do this to me. You know what the truth is? He can do anything He wants to me. He has every right. He can take me apart. If He wants to, He's the Creator. I'm just the lump of clay. Nebuchadnezzar gets it. At that time, verse 36, my reason returned to me and my majesty and my splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven. For all His works are true, and His ways just, and He is able to humble those who walk in pride. That is no negotiation. This is not Nebuchadnezzar saying, I am Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon, and I am ready to negotiate. This is capitulation. This is a humble Nebuchadnezzar who learned his lesson well. Psalm 49 verse 12 tells us, Man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. James 4 verse 6 says he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so we wonder, will we see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? Ultimately, honestly, that's for God to decide. If you're asking me based on His personal testimony, I would not be at all surprised. I think we may very well see Nebuchadnezzar there. Wouldn't that be ironic that Nebuchadnezzar would be in heaven, but perhaps Solomon would not? Because at the end of Solomon's life, he rejected the Lord and went after the idols of his many wives. Whereas at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life, he goes after the one true God. Well, all of those things are in God's hands. But I want to end with one question tonight. And that is simply this. What does it take to get the attention of a cynical, rebellious man like Nebuchadnezzar? Let me rephrase the question. How far is God willing to go to get the world's, the rebellious world's attention? And the answer is seven years. Seven years. One more proof of the legitimacy of this story, by the way, in all the meticulous chronicles of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, all the historical artifacts, all the writings that have been discovered and dug up, there isn't a single historical record of any activity whatsoever from 582 to 575 B.C. There is a seven-year blackout. And historians will tell you, archaeologists will say, Near Eastern leaders loved to record and broadcast their accomplishments, their signature achievements, while ignoring and hiding their embarrassments. We call it spin. But it's what they did. It's why you rarely find the embarrassing things that happen to leaders written by them and their historians. It's usually written by other nations about those leaders. Of course, all the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel, every embarrassing act is written right in God's Word because God tells the truth. But in Nebuchadnezzar's case, none of it's there because it's all here. You see, God preserved it. 
God made sure that it got into His Word, Nebuchadnezzar's own testimony, His own witness. And four times in this testimony, Nebuchadnezzar details the length of his affliction. In verse 16, 23, 25, and 32, he says it four different times. This is Sheba Idan in the Hebrew. Sheba Idan, seven years. Seven years long. He was insane for seven years. The exact length of the tribulation. Another fascinating parallel between the book of Daniel and the coming revelation of Jesus Christ. Timothy LaHaye, in his book Revelation Unveiled, wrote, More space is dedicated to that little seven-year period than any other comparable time frame in the entire Bible. You realize that? God talks more about the tribulation, dedicates more space to it than anything else. Jesus declared it. He named it. He said in Matthew 24.21, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Jeremiah talked about it. Jeremiah 30, verse 5, Thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for the day is great, there is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Now like Nebuchadnezzar, lots of people remain hung up in the same kind of fruitless, superficial hanging garden. It's just enough garden to hang ourselves by. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, what a picture for the world we live in. And so like the world, Nebuchadnezzar faced seven years of affliction. The world is facing seven years of tribulation. God has proclaimed it. He has described it. He has said it is coming. And the question is, will the world wake up? We know the answer is no. Will we wake up? Well, people we're in contact with be shared the gospel of Jesus Christ in time. And I don't say that to freak anybody out, but just to speak truth, it's coming. Nebuchadnezzar had one year to repent. How long do we have? I don't know. The wrath of God will be satisfied one way or the other, either on the cross, so you come to Him with faith in Jesus and His wrath is satisfied, or in the tribulation. But such is the grace of God. Now check this out. Such is the grace of God that even though tribulation comes, He leaves a stump. He leaves a stump. Back in chapter 4, verse 15. He says, Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. Down in verse 26. In that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that heaven rules. A stump is left. A stump would survive the seven years of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity, the stump being the tree, being a picture of his kingdom, protected and confined during those seven years, but the stump would grow. Nebuchadnezzar would return. Now gang, I don't think this is talking about if some of you are thinking, oh, it's the remnant of Israel. I don't think so. Why not? Because this is a Gentile story. And this is a promise to a Gentile. And it's talking in many ways about Gentile things. The stump recalls those Gentile nations who 
coming to faith in the Lord will be restored in the coming kingdom. God's leaving a stump of kingdoms. He's leaving a stump of Gentile nations in the world. Let me read this to you. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. It will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised up above the hills and all the nations will stream into it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. And then there will be a peace. So green. We will all know the true meaning of the word shalom. Jesus promises that peace. Now, you know that peace is available to you right now, right here tonight. It is available by taking your life to Jesus and laying it at His feet. It is available to the non-believer if they will come to faith in Jesus Christ. It is available to the believer who just turns around, who lays it down, who stops replaying and regurgitating and repeating all of the Lame stuff that doesn't heal, doesn't help us, doesn't bring away distress. And I believe if Nebuchadnezzar were here tonight, he'd be stumping for that peace. Most holy Jesus, we sang earlier, you alone can rescue. You alone can save. You alone can make the impossible possible. We see this with Nebuchadnezzar. We thank You for the testimony that You preserved in Scripture that we might see what You did with this King. Father, we live in an insane world. A world that is in constant motion. A world that has no idea what peace really means. I pray, Lord, Your kingdom come and Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, such that peace truly will reign. And until that marvelous day, Lord, with every breath that we draw, I ask that You will give us the peace that surpasses all comprehension. The peace of Jesus Christ. Jesus, You said, not as the world gives do I give to You. My peace I leave with You. And so, Father, I I want to ask tonight before we leave, if there is anyone among us who is suffering from stress or worry or fretting, that the peace of Christ would descend. That we would walk out of here assured, despite the battles of our lives, that we walk with the peace of Your Spirit. Most Holy Spirit, would You descend upon us now and bring Your peace. In Jesus' name. Amen.